Good morning, guys. How y'all doing this morning? Good, 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 good. Um, I'm Ed Griffin-Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here on the staff at my church, and happy y'all are here. We're gonna we're wrapping up a series on the book of James. We're in chapter 5, and before we get started this morning, and probably some of you are aware of this, and some of you maybe not be aware of this, if you <clears throat> are on Facebook or if you've watched WRBL, WTVM, XDX, I think all the TV stations for the most part, we've got a family, a sweet young family in our church, the Cremos, who I think are here. Right there. I'm sorry. I'm blind. I had to look around the whole room to circle back right there. Well, they live, and we've got some pictures. They live on in Smith Station on the other side. They live on the bad side of that bridge, on the back side, and that bridge washed out two weeks? 23rd. Bridge washed out. It's on a private road. It's not on a, on a county or a state road. So uh, you have a private landowner that owns a bridge, and that ain't no cheap bridge. And I remember the first that I heard about it, I thought it was bridge was, you know, about this big, and what are they whining about? But that's, it's, it, ain't, it ain't that big. It's a huge bridge, and it's a big deal, and they're sort of stuck on the other side. And we, lots of people in the community have come together, and we delivered some supplies over there last week, and that, that, uh, that picture of that pontoon boat was the only way to get supplies over there. It was like this surreal thing, like it's third world country, and we're back 100 years ago. It's just crazy. Um, so really what I'm at, we're talking about prayer today, and so I, would, I just ask that we, as a body, come together and just pray uh, for their family. You're supposed to PCS the 15th, right? To Fort Hood? Yes. Yeah, well, he's got to be not here on the 15th, and they're on the bad side. But you may be wondering, how did he get? How did they get here today? But they got a rental. You got a rental car and have it parked on the other side of the water, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. That's a temporary thing. Um, so anyway, I just ask if we can come together and pray together as a church body uh, for the Cremos. So like I said, we're finishing up this this series on the book of James, and James is a very practical book, probably one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It's about kind of how to live. Uh, James gives us the marks of a mature Christian. We're going to talk through that a little bit today. Um, it was written by uh, Jesus' brother, James, probably 15-ish years after, uh, after the crucifixion and, and the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to be in chapter 5 today, verses 13 through 18, five or six verses. But before we do that, I want to, before we dive into that, I want to give us, because we have walked through for the last six or seven weeks, I guess, we've walked through this book, and I want to give us a little, maybe just a little take-home little nugget or something for each chapter, flying at 35,000 feet, a, a little something about each chapter. So chapter 1, and these are the marks of a mature Christian, and, and number one, in chapter one, in verses two and three, uh, a mature Christian is, <clears throat> is patient in testing, and the verses two and three say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Does it say if you meet trials? No, it says when. It doesn't say if they're coming, it just says when they're coming, because they, they are coming. And so he says, count it all for joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a lot of patience woven through the book of James. 
So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, a mature Christian's faith, it works. His faith, it, it works. And in verse 18 of chapter 2 is where we're going to find this. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So a mature Christian has faith that does something. It acts and it works. In chapter 3, uh, uh, the third mark of a mature Christian is that he displays power over his tongue, over his mouth. James 3, 9, and 10 say this, With it, our mouths, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And then James says, My brothers, these things ought not be so. This one, and I, I wasn't going to do this, but i got to do this. This, this chapter 3, um, like I wondered this week, where, where did kindness go? And I mean, and I'm not being all cushy and fluffy. I'm really not. But not that cushy and fluffy is a bad thing, but I'm, I'm not. But I'm saying where all of a sudden is it just okay in our world to be so nasty and so mean, just mean. And kindness is just like got thrown out to the curb. You think about all the... I don't care, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, black, white, blue, green, yellow, it don't make no difference. When did it just become okay to be so nasty? Look at all the, the garbage that was tweeted just in the last week. Stupid stuff that folks just can't control their mouth. And I mean, in, in a mature Christian, James says, it ought not be that way. And it convicted me about something that happened 14 years ago, 13 or 14 years ago, when I got saved, which was 16 years ago, 16 and a half years ago, um, my family, my, my, my mom and dad and brother and sister, for the most part, just disowned me and Susan when I got saved, threw us to the curb. And, 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 and it was ugly. There was probably five good years where it was like very ugly. And so we were two or three years into that ugliness where my, particularly my dad didn't speak one word to us. <clears throat> and, and I was, and he had done or said something that was pretty ugly, and I was a very immature believer. I was a believer, but I was very immature, and, I, and he had said or done something that was really ugly, and I was typing up an email, typing up an email, and Susan says, don't send that until you sleep on it. And I looked at her, this is so bad, but I'm just being transparent. I looked at her and went, <laughs> just bam. But you know what happens? I slept on it. I didn't sleep on it and do that. I looked at her in defiance and did that. But you know what you, know what you can't take back? You can't take that back. I mean, you can't take emails back. You can't take text messages back. You can't, words come out of your mouth. You can't grab them and shove them back in. You can't take that stuff back. And so I've tried to live since that day because guess what? The next day I woke up and totally regretted having sent that email. And so I live my life, try to live my life now by this mantra that Susan gave me, which is just don't hit the send button until you sleep on it. And so I'm trying to, to be that way. And James says all of that ugliness, and it's the same mouth that in one second praises God 
that same mouth spews out hate and stupidity. That is the height of hypocrisy. That What kind of a message does that send to a lost and dying world? What kind of a message if, <clears throat> if I'd have had a friend who was trying to think about, do I believe this God stuff? Do I, I'm on the fence, and I don't know if I believe or I don't believe. And I and me, Ed, I profess to be a Christian. What if he'd have been sitting there and watched that going on between me and my dad and watched me do that? That's a terrible example for the world. And so James says, chapter 3, it ought not be that way. And so that's chapter 3. In chapter 4, he says the mar- one of the marks of a mature Christian is this. We talked about this last week, that he stops resisting God and he starts resisting the devil. He stops resisting God and he starts resisting the devil. <clears throat> and in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 4, says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that's chapter 4. And then in 5, where we're going to be in today in verses 13 through 18, we'll see that a mature Christian displays prayerfulness no matter what. He displays prayerfulness uh, in all conditions, in all circumstances. So let's look at, starting in verse 13, let's look at this passage. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And you all notice the words, we, we started doing this a few weeks ago. Notice the words that God inspired James to use. Notice the words that are used over and over in this passage. We're going to check that out in just a second too. So, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today, and we, <coughs> excuse me, you know, as we finish working through this book uh, uh, of James, we ask that you just help us get our arms around this whole prayer thing. Lord, let us surround ourselves with prayer warriors and, and friends and, and folks in small groups where we can pray for each other, where folks can pray for us, where we can just lock arms with people and lift things up to you. In prayer, Lord, and let us just understand how powerful prayer really is. Lord, we love you and we thank you for just, for always listening to our prayers, for always having an open ear. Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So look, first thing is first. If we want to look, I said it just a second ago, at, that, at, at what the thrust of a passage is, look for words that are repeated. And so if we look in these five or six verses, just just look. You want to know what this passage is about? Circle these words in verse 13. Let him pray. 14, let them pray over him. 15, the prayer of faith. 16, and pray for one another. And the prayer of a righteous person. And he prayed fervently. And he prayed again. Every verse has prayer, 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 prayerfulness. 
in all circumstances is all over that. And I told y'all, I think it was last week, there's verses, there's passages, there's sections of Scripture that are difficult. We're not going to avoid the difficult things. There's a couple of verses in these few that are kind of difficult, and we're going we're gonna to rock on to them and talk through them. And, and, you know, there is a thread of patience. There's a, there's a thread of patience that runs through James from the very beginning of the book, really, until the end. And it's not a passive patience. It's an active patience. And James tells us, you know, how can we be patient in the midst of struggling, how can because we don't want to be. It's in we don't we just don't want to be. We want answers and we want the answers now. And James tells us to be patient and joyful. But how do we do that? Well, what he says is that uh, that God alone can give us and grow us in the patience that we need to walk through the tough times. And the vehicle that he uses to do that is prayer. It, it's prayer. He tells us to pray in all circumstances. And so in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? James says, let him pray. So pray when you're struggling. All kinds of hurts that James talks about all throughout this book, whether it be physical issues or, or emotional uh, hurt or financial hurt or whatever it may be, James addresses in this book, and there's those problems are all throughout this room. Every single one of us has some of that stuff going on, whatever it may be. Somebody in this room is walking through a financial struggle. Somebody is walking through an emotional struggle or a physical struggle or spiritual struggle. So James tells us, pray when you're struggling. Paul wrote in Philippians, one of my favorite, like, lean on, go to, most favorite passages is, is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And this is Paul writing the church at Philippi, and it's, it, it jives right along with what James is saying. And Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Ask God, request from God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say, make your request known and God's going to grant you every wish. He is not a genie in a bottle. That junk on TV about genie in a bottle gods, that ain't what this book says, and that is not what Paul wrote in Philippians. But what he promises is peace. Give it to him and he will give us peace. What he's saying is give me all of it. And in exchange for you just giving me all of that, I will give you peace. We in prayer, you hear people pray like this all the time. At the end of a prayer, and we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. You hear people say it all the time. And we lift it up to you in his precious name. And we lift it up to you. Well, here's the deal. If you really do lift it up to him, then lift it up to him and let him have it. Don't be holding on to it. Lift it up to him. Let him have it. And he's not a genie in a bottle, and he may not answer every prayer the way that you would script him out to answer the prayer, but he promises us peace. When I went through prostate cancer last year, 
you don't know what it's like to have a doctor say you have cancer. That's a, unless you had it. Um, it's a, I used to think if someone told me I had cancer, I would find a building and jump off head first. And then when he said those words, and Susan and I and our family prayed together, it's just, it's an odd thing because I, I would say, I have no idea, Lord, why this struggle is in my life, but you do. I'm not God. I don't get to know all those things. God has everlasting, God has eternal perspective. That's a good word, or good words. I don't get to have eternal perspective. I don't get to see, none of us do, get to see things all kind of at the same time. And I would, I just, we would pray, Lord, I don't know why this struggle is there, but I believe that you are sovereign. I believe that you are good. I believe that you have, have, have a purpose in my life. And so I'm going to walk through every door that you put in front of me. And I lifted it up to him. We lifted it up to him in Jesus' name and just gave it to him. And there, that peace was really unexplainable. I can't, I struggle even today to think about how that peace even did exist. But you know what? God promises that. So he says, so pray when you're struggling. But you know what he also, number two, he says, pray when you're happy. At the end of 13, verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Pray and praise, pray and praise, pray and praise. What a life that would be if we just prayed and praised and prayed and praised. And he tells us, don't just take your wants to God. Don't just take, Lord, I need you now, so we're going to hang out and talk. But when things are whatever good means, when things are good, when good things happen in your life, we need to be praising him for those as much as we're asking him to fix stuff that's broken. Because that's what we have. Put me in the front of the dang line. When something's busted, I want it fixed. And so we're real quick to do that. We're just not as quick to thank him for every good thing that comes along. So pray when you're happy as well. And then number three, James says, pray, he says, with the elders in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the implication is that there's somebody in the church that can't get to church. There's somebody in the body of Christ that can't get here for a gathering and they request that the elders go to them, pray with them and pray over them. And we've had the joy, the privilege of doing just that on various occasions when a, <clears throat> when a brother or sister is unable to gather and they said, can you come pray with us? Can you pray for, uh, for me? Can you pray over me? And so we'll just come and have a special time of prayer in that, like in that context. And verse 14 says, it says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And there's 2,000 years worth of discussion over what that means, over not what it means, the context of the oil. Um, why this anointing in the name of the Lord? And so 2,000 years condensed into 60 seconds, which is just going to kind of be my opinion, is that that oil is not, sac uh, it's not um, medicinal oil, that that oil is not sacramental or ritualistic because uh, that the... Typically, the ritual would be that they were anointing a body with that oil in preparing for death. This context is 
asking for healing, praying for healing. So in my opinion, that oil is symbolic. That oil is consecrating. That, that oil, and there's this picture all over the scriptures that there's not this special power in that oil. I think that when you get down to it, it is setting apart for a purpose, something or some, someone. And I think the image, when you get down to it, the image in this passage in James is about prayer. It's not about oil. It's the only time in the New Testament letters where oil is, <clears throat> uh, where there's a, a command, so to speak, to anoint a sick person with oil. It's the only time in the New Testament letters where that is done. So the emphasis is on prayer. The oil is a secondary thing. The emphasis is on prayer in this case <clears throat> with the elders, but don't miss this, that it's not just praying with the elders. It is praying with the church. It is, it is a command to pray with the church. And this kind of prayer for healing, according to verse 16, is not just the elders. It is with the body. It is with the church. And I'm not skipping verse 15. This is verse 16. We're going to get back to verse 15 in a second. And so I tell you all, yes, elders play a special role as shepherds, as overseers, as pastors in the context of a brother or sister who can't make it into a gathering. But the reality is that praying like this is not just something that elders have some special power to do. It's not like God just said, you, you are the elders and you get this, like they've been knighted with some special authority, special power in prayer. It's not, it's not like that. And I want you all to know, we have an elder system in our church. There's three elders right now. There's, I'm an elder, Park Adamson is an elder, and Travis Hargrove is an elder. There's a plurality of elders. There's not a hierarchy of elders. There's not some chief elder and then all the other little peon elders. That's not the way it is. There is an equality in the elders. The word in, in, in the Greek is presbyteros, and it's translated sometime, sometimes pastor and sometimes shepherd and sometimes elder. And that is, that's the way that our church works. That's a total aside from this other than it's not like that God has chosen his power to be relegated in some special group of people. The special group of people that he has relegated his power into is believers. It is the people who profess and claim the name of Christ as their leader and the forgiver of their lives. That's who has that, that intimate relationship, that prayerful relationship with God. And so I, and even though um, this passage says for the elders to pray over this person, it's not because of special power. It's because of a special role in the church. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, it is also interesting, though, in verse 16, and this is one of those sort of maybe difficult little things, it is the only verse in the New Testament where we are commanded to confess our sins to each other. And this command is given in the context of praying. Just remember what this passage is about. This passage is about prayer. And in particular, this passage is about prayer for healing. And so this command is given also 
in that context. And so I want you to think about the relationship between prayer for healing and confession of sins. Now track with me. Sickness always involves, generally, it always involves a prayer for physical healing. If we're talking about physical sickness, we're going to pray for physical healing. But sickness should all also involve a spiritual examination before God. So in the same way that we need to spiritually examine ourselves before God all the time, but this context is, is where we say, God, I want to be clean before you. I want to be pure in my body before you. I want to be pure um, in my spirit before you. And what I want to emphasize, and this is difficult, is that sickness and death go all the way back to where? Where does sickness and death go back to? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Sickness and death go back to the garden. God breathed life in Adam and Eve. They were hanging out with God and it was cool. And there was no sin. And there was no sickness. And there was no death. Sin and sickness and death entered the world at the fall. So had there been no sin, there would be no sickness and no death. And so that should make us hate it all the more. It should make us... And so it's, you really can say that, that sin indirectly causes all sickness. But, but what I'm not saying is this, and I'm not saying it because the Scripture doesn't say it, is that if somebody is sick, they must be living in sin. That is not at all what I'm saying. That's not the picture that James, that's not the picture that Jesus gives us. The whole picture of Scripture counters with that. But at the same time, in sickness, we should be driven to hate sin all the more. We should be driven to despise it and hate it because that is what brought sickness and death into the world. And when we walk through illness, when we walk through struggles in life, part of the purpose is for us to hate sin and to love righteousness and to guard ourselves. And there's no question that when we are struggling, whatever it is that we're struggling with, that there's temptations to sin. And so James says, in this context, confess to each other. And this is the picture. Intercede for each other. Pray with each other. Confess struggles with each other. Both of these things together, that is what brothers and sisters do with and for one another. And this is where I want to say to all y'all, it's rally day. We got small groups going out there. This stuff don't happen in the context of a Sunday morning gathering. It doesn't. It comes in the context, and it happens in the context when you wrap your arms around a friend or you make a new friend or you walk life and you share life with each other. It doesn't happen in isolation. It happens when we walk and when we share life together the confession to each other, the interceding on behalf of each other. It just never is going to happen anonymously, even not even anonymously. Just sitting in this room on Sunday morning, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen during the week. Richard said it in the welcome. It's going to happen during the week. And so, I mean, how would it, you like it if I said we're 27 minutes into the message it's time for confession. 
turn to the person on your left and confess all your sins to them. And then when you're done doing that, turn to the person on your right. Like you probably may not even know the person on your right or left. That's just awkward, and I, ugh, I hate awkward. So trust me, we're not going to do that. But when you're walking in the context of sharing life together, it almost just organically happens. It just happens when you got your arms around each other and you're on the street serving or you're sitting in somebody's living room having a Bible study or if you're sitting at, uh, at Starbucks, whatever it may be, it just kind of happens. And so we're supposed to do it, so how do we do it? And we do it in the context of walking uh, life with one another. And God intends that kind of a community. He intends that for all of us interceding on behalf of each other. So there is a glaring question. I said I would come back uh, to verse 15, and there's a question in verse 15, and I want to read you that verse, and here's what it says. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This is something I have struggled with for a long time, and I'll get to my struggle in a second, but the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Does that mean because it kind of appears to, does that mean that if you pray with enough faith and you pray long enough and you pray hard enough that that someone's going to be healed? Is that what that verse means? Some people are going to conclude that if if that person's not healed, because remember this is the prayer in the context of illness, some would conclude that if that person is not healed, then you failed in your prayer, that you did not pray with enough faith, you don't have enough faith, or you didn't pray long enough, or you didn't pray hard enough, whatever it, whatever it may be, so is that the case? And I would say practically that doesn't hold water because I don't also think that God tells us to check our brain when we read the Bible. He doesn't. Um, so I don't think that holds water. And we, as a church, we have prayed, and as elders, we have prayed over, over brothers and sisters who have been very sick. And you know what? Some of them have lived, and some of them, unfortunately, have have not. And what am I going to do? I'm not in a million years going to say to the family members of somebody that passed away, well, I'm sorry if you and I had just prayed a little longer, a little harder, with a little more faith than, uh, than they would have lived. No, but we know that's just not the case. So practically, it doesn't hold up. But what is the, then what is the Scripture saying? Because that's my experience, and that's probably your experience. But Scripture trumps experience. So what is the Bible saying to us here? And here's what James gives us an example of Elijah in verse 17 and 18 that almost seems out of place in, the ver- in, the, in this passage. But he gives us this example of Elijah, and it's looking back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. You ought to write that down. Go back and read 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And if you go to those two chapters, what you're going to find is James, what, he's talk, what James is talking about is, a, is a, a tight relationship in 1 Kings 17 and 18, an intricate relationship between Elijah's praying and, the, and this. It's a, there's an intricate relationship between Elijah's praying and the Word of God. And you'll see the author in 1 Kings over and over, he talks about, Elijah being led by, directed by, guided by, focused on, um, um, empowered by the word of the Lord. You see it all over First Kings 17 and 18. 
And it says in the word of the Lord uh, uh, came to Elijah, and Elijah spoke the word of the Lord, and here's what he said. And this is James kind of writing this later. He says, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then God says a few years later, he tells Elijah, go show, uh, go take yourself to Ahab, go show Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And by the end of chapter 18, Elijah is laying flat on his face, praying for God to bring rain. But God had already said that he was going to bring rain. And so the picture is, is the relationship between prayer and the word of God. And the beauty is that, is that God had said, this is what I'm going to do. But in his sovereign grace, in his wisdom, he takes and he uses the prayers of Elijah to accomplish his word. God gets to use whatever he wants to accomplish whatever he wants. And so the picture here is the prayer of a righteous man praying in alignment with God, praying in alignment with the desires of God, with the will of God, with the wants of God. And if we bring that over into into the context of a brother or sister who has cancer or whatever it may be, do we have, this is difficult, do we have a word from God in this book that says they're going to live? Probably we don't. Do we have a word from God in this book that says they're not going to live? Probably we don't. Most likely we don't have a word from God for sure either way that we can lean on. And this is, was, is my struggle. Then, then I say, well, look, God, I want to be obedient. How do I pray then? How do, is my prayer going to change the will of God? And I don't think it is. But there's a struggle there, and I think I just, in my own life, I think about my mom and dad. They both have Alzheimer's. My dad's 85, my mom is 81, and they both have Alzheimer's. My brother lives in Atlanta, my sister lives in uh, Virginia, in D.C., and both my parents have Alzheimer's. How 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 do I pray for that? You know, I pray for healing. Do I have a word from God that says that their Alzheimer's is going to be cured? I don't think I do. Well, then, but I want to pray in alignment with God's word. And so James says that we pray in faith. We pray believing that God is going to do what we know he wants to do. We pray in accordance with his word. And Jesus himself said in Luke 11, if you ask anything in my name according to my will, it will be given to you. He doesn't say ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. Ask anything in my name according to my will, it will be given to you. So bring that back into James 5, and I think all studying this week, it just made me think, here's, here's a, a point. I want to and I want you to make your wants God's wants. Line, we got to, God's not supposed to line himself up with us. We need to be lining ourselves up with him. So make your wants God's wants. And as you grow and you grow in Christ likeness and you, you grow in righteousness, you will begin to want what he wants. It just will happen. The more you dig in and the more you read this book, the more your wants are going to line up with his wants. So number one, make your wants his wants. Number two, and this is a struggle too, ask for whatever you want. And that is a key 
but it's not as for me it's not a it was not necessarily a satisfying answer in my heart and in my life because i want to know are you going to heal that is what everybody in this room i would imagine has had a friend or family member who's been sick and you prayed for healing and i want god to tell me are you going to heal him or not are you going to heal her or not i want to know but that's not the right question but it's the question that we want to know, and so there is a struggle there. And so if you think about it this way, when you are praying for this brother or sister with cancer or for, with Alzheimer's or whatever it is, what is it that you and I know that God wants? There's probably a bunch, but I want to give you three things that I know that he wants. I know that he wants his glory to be made known. I know he does. His word says it. Everything about him says he wants his glory to be known. You know that he wants his servants, you and I, to be strengthened and comforted in the time of need and in the time of weakness. You know he does. You know that he wants his gospel to be advanced. You know that he's going to take all these things and advance his gospel. It says it too many places all over the word that that is what he's going to do. And so I want to pray those things. I want to pray in alignment with those things. And obviously there's things in this picture that we just painted that we don't know. But there's a freedom to express our desires to him. But don't miss this. The, the image that the scripture paints is not of me bending God's arm behind his back just enough to get him to do what I want him to do. That, that is not the image that scripture paints. And you got to remember there are times in God's sovereign wisdom and grace that he chooses not to heal for a reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is Paul writing in verses 8 and 9 when Paul prayed three times for God to take away this thorn from his flesh. Three times God said what? He didn't say yes, he said no. And what did Paul say? Well, I guess I didn't pray hard enough or long enough. That ain't what Paul said. God turned around and said, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. God wants us leaning in and onto him. And God does this sometimes, and he's good, and he's sovereign, and he's wise, and more than anything, he has eternal perspective. We don't. He can see it all at the same time. And I would just want to say this. I want to say, look, I know, God, that you're trustworthy. I know that you're good. I know that you're wise. I know that you have the power to heal. But my ultimate desire is that you would get glory, that you would strengthen this brother or sister, that we would uphold them, and you would do whatever it is that is going to advance your gospel, and that you're going to ultimately, you're going to raise this brother and sister up for eternity. That is praying in faith. And so we come to we're at the end of this book of James now. And and in light of tons of commands, tons of instructions in in this book, in light of all those, James says, look out for each other. And so the point of walking through the book is not just so that we know what to do, how to live in a way that honors God. The point is that we can help each other live in that way, that we can lock arms together and live in that way everything that we've talked about through james it leads to a faith that works 
It gives us an image, again, of what a mature Christian looks like. And so I want to give you three points, and then we'll be done. Number one is this. Faith that works is only possible by the gracious gospel of Christ. Bringing all of it together, we're talking about gospel obedience. And if we can live like that, if we can live that way, it is an overflow of the one that lives inside of us. So number one, faith that works, it's only possible by the gracious gospel of Christ. And number two, a faith that works is played out in the context of the body of Christ, which is all of us together. It plays out that way. And James tells us, brothers, 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 throughout his book, this faith is lived out together. It's not lived out in isolation. Whether we're walking through trials together, whether we're locking our arms and praising God for something wonderful that has happened in our life, whatever it is, whatever it is, we're not doing it in isolation. We're doing it together. And then ultimately, number three, a faith that works is aimed towards great glory to Christ. And I ask you this, what would it look like if in Christianity today that the world didn't see a picture of people that were praying a prayer and then living like a bunch of idiots? What would it be like if the, what the world saw today is people whose lives looked radically different? If, and I would say this, if you, do, I'm asked this, do you believe that what you believe is really real? If you do, then you will be different. If you, and maybe radically different. What would it be like if the hypocrisy in the church was just minimized a little bit? It'd be awesome if it was gone, but what would it be like if it was just minimized if those of us that called and professed Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what if we looked radically different? Wouldn't that be the perfect witness to a lost and dying world without ever even opening our mouth? What if they just looked at the way that we were living and it was radically different? That would be the witness, and it would be because we were radically transformed by a radical God. And so James tells us it's all about Christ. Good works are only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. They're played out in the body of Christ, not in isolation. And they all are to bring him glory. And I would say this, if you don't know him, if you're sitting here today and, and you don't know him, today today's the day. Today is the day that you can rest in the hope of living with him forever. And all you got to do is repent and believe. You repent and you believe. You repent of all of the junk in your past and you believe that, that he died on a cross 2,000-ish years ago to, to pay for all of that stuff that you're repenting of. And, he, and, and that, that death on that cross made this relationship with the God of the universe available. And I'm telling you, the fellowship with him and the fellowship with other believers is just such a beautiful thing, and that is the God who jealously longs for that relationship with you. And so, look, if, you, if that happened, if you want that relationship with God, I want you to pray this with me. I want all of y'all, if you would... Bow your, bow your heads, close your eyes, and, and here's the deal. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and sing a, and dance a happy dance on the seat. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer, and, and, and here goes. If, 
you know, you can pray it out loud, you can pray it to yourself, you can pray it in your mind, but, but pray it if you have never done that. And it is, here it goes, it's, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am in need of rescue, and I am broken, I am fallen, and I am sinful, and I need you to rescue me. I need your grace, and that grace is free. And, Lord, I need it, and I'm sorry for the junk that I've done, and I repent of it. And, Lord, I believe that you died on that cross to pay the price for my particular sins and then that you rose from the grave three days later and conquered that. And, Lord, today I am saying yes. And you may, be, you may have said no a thousand times in the last 20 years, but today you're saying yes. And so if you prayed that prayer, if you said those words, even if they're just in, in your mind, here's the ask. The ask is not, um, it's not to stand up in your chair. It's not to, to raise your hand. It is simply to write on that connection card in that seat back in front of you. Just write your name down on that card and that that happened to you today because we want to walk the journey with you. We want to, we want to come alongside of you in that faith journey. And y'all can open your eyes and, and look up. I just want, um, if that was you today, then the heavens are screaming and, and laughing and in joy. And so are people in this room. Because here's the deal. When somebody goes from lost to found, that is huge. That is why we do whatever it is we do. There's no other reason than to, to lead someone from lost to and spend an eternity in hell to found and having hope in everlasting life. That is why we do what we do. That mission has never changed since the birth of the church in Acts 2. And so that's why we do what we do. And so the next thing, the next step, if you, that was you today, or even if that was you last week or the week before, is to take uh, the God plunge. That's what we call baptism here. July 15th is the next God plunge. And so if that's you, prayerfully consider taking the God plunge in July. So let me pray real quick, and then we're going to have uh, another song, another, some more uh, worship. Lord, we love you today. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you made this relationship with you available to us and the vehicle that you, you, you used to teach us and to give us patience is prayer. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.